Guys, welcome to the Nailed It podcast. We are your hosts now officially, Dr. Cole and... Hey, it's Dr. J. Fitz back in the place. Man, officially doctors now. Official. So official. It feels good. It's been a long road, man. Yeah, hey, uh, you know it's official because I saw you change your LinkedIn name. That's how I... Yeah, <laughs> I, I got on to link, LinkedIn. Hey, guys, find me. It's J. Fitz. <laughs> MD. Hey, also find me as well, man, since we're doing this. It's uh, Wendell Cole, MD. And I, I know you recently just came back from Cuba, man. How was Cuba? Man, Cuba was really nice. Um, little did I know, I, I went with a friend and I asked specifically. Just, they speak English, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah kind of, a little bit. That, well, apparently I was told, yeah, everybody speaks English there. I, I touched down and I'm trying to get a taxi. And guess what language they speak? It's all Spanish. It's all Spanish. Not one person. I didn't hear a lick of English the entire time I was there. Man, the the, the real question everybody wants to know, though, did you come back with cigars? Of course. Uh, Got some Cohibas. That's a a good one. That's a good one. Yeah. yeah. I actually remember that name. It's crazy. Yeah, Yeah, man. I had I know enough Spanish to get my my Cuban cigars. (laughs) The important things in life, right? Exactly, man. All right, man. Well... Go ahead and introduce today's guest. All right, we have a good one in store for you today. We have Dr. Letitia Bilbrew uh, coming to speak with, with us. Uh, she's coming from the University of Texas, Galveston. That's where she did a residency fellowship at the University of Florida, Gainesville. And she's coming to speak to us today about carpal tunnel syndrome and some other median nerve neuropathies as well. But mainly this one's going to be on carpal tunnel. Uh, so I hope you guys enjoy. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Bill Brew, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking your time out of your day to come and speak to us. Um, so thank you. My pleasure, my pleasure, of course. Um, so what, uh, what Dr. Fitz and I had here, we kind of wanted just to get some questions to kind of get just get to know you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. We was actually kind of talking about some of this off air, but mm-hmm. uh, just so some of our listeners could get some of your knowledge you have. Uh, you know, in med- medical school, they don't really teach uh, students how to be, uh, well, they don't teach a whole lot about residency as a whole. Uh, so I was just going to ask you, what are some of the things or anything that you later on that you wish you would have known about residency when you first started? Um, I, I wish I knew that residency truly is going to be the toughest training that you'll ever have. And um, it's, it's tougher than med school. It's tougher than any postgraduate degree you're going to go through. It takes up your, your time, your emotions, your spirit, <laughs> mm-hmm. your physical attributes. Okay. Um, it really it really pushes you to your limits. And and it's a bad thing in one sense in that it, it pushes you to your limits and you'll have breakdowns, you know, physically, emotionally, spiritually, whatever it may be. It's a good thing because once you get through it, everything else is easy. Right. You know, you will... You will look at everything that comes at you, whether it's a clinical situation or a personal situation, like, well, you know what? This is better than second year when I was on call right. <laughs> 24 hours a day. Um, and so and it also makes you realize how much free time you have because your time is absorbed in residency. Everything is about being a resident. Great. And so my question is, what book that you've read has impacted your life the most and why? Mm. I would say, um, who moved my cheese? And I can't remember the author's name, 
but it is a very short, um, simple book that teaches us why um, change is the only constant in life and, and why we need to make sure we're always adapting. And to push back to the residency question, if you are not adaptable, um, you're really going to struggle and or fail in residency. And Who Moved My Cheese showed me that we can never get comfortable because that's when we just wither away and die. I love that. I got to add that to, to my repertoire of books to read. Yes, yeah, so I can see that coming already. And uh, we wanted the last thing is we, we want to come like always end up like a with a one liner. You know, for example, you might be in the doing rounds and they're like, all right, if we have a 34 year old patient doing X, 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 and Y. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, my one liner might be like, hey, I'm a 24 year old um, orthopedic surgery intern mm-hmm. who loves to try new food and travel or Dr. Fitz may be a 27 year old ortho intern who loves to. Uh, eat, love, love his Marvel comics, big nerd, uh, big travel guy, and just want to enjoy life. So, so what would be a one-liner for you? You don't have to say your age if you don't want to say your age, but if you do, okay. okay. But what would be a one-liner? Um, oh, 32. I'm a 32-year-old um, African-American orthopedic surgeon, one of three in the state, um, who has worked very hard to get where she is and wants to make sure that many more that look like her get to that same place great i love it so let's let's go ahead and get into the topic at hand for the day okay. uh in our which is pretty much like peripheral, peripheral neuropathy and we want to start off with a case okay. so our case would be say for example we have a 46 year old female comes into your office uh she's an office clerk and she comes in complaining of right hand clum- clumsiness and tingling in her first three fingers kind of where do we go from there um well the first thing anytime you're thinking about a patient is that you look at the age group and then you start to come up with your differential of what's causing your symptoms. So uh, she's over the age of 40, so you start to think of compression neuropathies. Numbness and tingling in the hand, um, you have to then break it down by digit, right? Because you have the median nerve that is the thumb, the index, the long finger, half of the ring finger. You have the ulnar nerve, which is the ulnar half of the ring finger, the small finger. Then you have the radial nerve, which is really the dorsum of the hand. Um, And then you have to figure out what tests are going to tell you about each of those um, sensation distributions. The other thing you have to pay attention to is the clumsiness, because clumsiness um, is layman's terms for muscular weakness, meaning I can't do what I used to do before. And so you have to then start to, you always let the patient talk. Like I always let a patient talk until they exhaust themselves like 95% of the time because um, the other 5% you're like I'm going to be here forever and then you start to ask your questions like what do you mean by clumsiness and I give them examples because patients don't remember uh, can you button your buttons right how about pulling up your pants um, opening a jar because then that's telling me buttons is sensation and they can't do it not because of weakness but because they really can't feel uh, pulling up pants is usually arthritis in the thumbs because that requires pinch strength and then gripping is your intrinsics and your grip strength comes from the intrinsic muscles in the hand the lumbricals um, which majority of which are through the ulnar nerve so that's how it's starting to help form a a picture of what pathology it's going to be and when you're trying to determine the the distribution of the 
you know, the, the tingling that they might be complaining of? Do you usually just have them point to you kind of where is it tingling at or do you ever have them draw it out or anything like that? So I have a um, pre-op form and I'll have them draw it out and, and I have a big hand. Um, but a lot of time what do patients do? They go all their fingers, right? right? And so if I'm thinking it's carpal tunnel, I kind of say when I, I take their hand and I say, do you feel like it's mostly and I touch their hands going from the palm, these three fingers here. Maybe 50% of the time, they're like, oh, yeah, I guess it's not my entire hand, right? The other time, they're like, no, nah, it's all the fingers. When they do that, then I say, okay. And then I start to touch their thumb. So does this thumb still feel the same as this small finger? And when they tell me, oh, you know what, I can feel my small finger better, then that immediately, for me, takes out the ulnar nerve or cubital tunnel. Now I'm narrowing in on median nerve pathology. So what are some of the things on physical exams or when you're doing a physical exam that you want to be on the lookout for? So um, you want to do your provocative tests. So there is um, a Tenel sign. And a Tenel is when you start tapping proximal to the area of compression. So the carpal tunnel is usually right at the wrist crease and goes a few centimeters distal to that. So you don't want to just do your tenel in the carpal tunnel, right? Because unless it's severe, they'll jump. You start proximal and you start tapping. And you go up one centimeter at a time. And you say, let me know if you feel numbness, tingling, burning, pain. And you do that all the way until kind of the crease of the thumb in the hand. If you were to bend your hand where your thumb line is, Klein's line, you go all the way up there. Sometimes the Tonell isn't positive. Um, so then I do what's called a Phalen's test. And usually I have the patient relax again if I just do the Tonell. And while I'm talking to them, I say, bend your wrist as far as it can go. Because you have to hold a Phalen's for 30 to 60 seconds for it to be effective. And then I start talking to them about other stuff. And then I tell them maybe 30 seconds in, how's your sensation? And they're like, oh, man, I'm starting to feel numb and tingling. So, again, telling me it's carpal tunnel. Um, and then the last provocative test is called a Durkin's, and this is just straight compression. So you're inducing a carpal tunnel. I use my thumb at the carpal tunnel, and I press down and hold it for 30 to 60 seconds. And the same thing, numbness, tingling, burning, pain. Which one of those is the most sensitive test? The Durkin's. The Durkin's test. Mm-hmm. Great. So once you once you've done your physical exam, what are the next steps? What what else would you be be doing? Um, so the next steps is is just you just look at the hand, right? And so the median nerve at the carpal tunnel is only going to supply muscles of the thenar pad, the opponent's pollicis, the flexor pollicis brevis, the abductor pollicis brevis. If you notice that that muscle in the hand is starting to get flattened or atrophied then you can say, well, this has been going on a really long time, right? The second thing is that those three groups of muscles is what allows us to oppose, which makes us unique as humans. And so I often have them bring their thumb to their small finger, and I put my finger underneath, and I say, keep it there, and push down. And a lot of times I can just flip it up, which means the carpal tunnel is so severe that it's now led to atrophy of the thinner muscles. Um, other times I've seen it present as if they have clammy hands, um, the small finger and the ring finger will be kind of clammy, and then the rest of the fingers are dry, and that's because that, that fine sensation is gone. Um, specific things you can do is a two-point discrimination, and normal should be around four to five. Um, but if you don't have that in your office, you grab a penny or like a dime, you rub it along their fingers and ask them if they can feel the grooves. 
And, and when you say four to five, you mean four to five millimeters? Four to five millimeters, right. right. And like, so if it goes above that, you know, if you're hitting six or seven, um, then that's abnormal. Great. Great. Now, is there anything else we should be looking out for on when we're doing our physical exams? That's, that's mostly it. Just in your experience, how often are you, some of these tests actually coming up positive with, with these patients when they come in complaining of that, that nerve uh, distribution with the paresthesias? I mean, I rarely have all three, the Tenel, the Phelans, and the Durkins positive. Um, if someone has long-standing carpal tunnel, they're going to have one. And usually the one I find is a Tenel, even though Durkins is most sensitive. Um, maybe it's just the way I do my Tenel. As you develop your skill set as, uh, as a resident or as a doctor, you'll figure out which tests work better in your hand. And for me, I can usually get a, a patient to have a positive Tenel. At what times would you use some kind of uh, like studies to help with this uh, diagnosis? If you're in board collections, you get an EMG on everyone. <laughs> That's another All right. talk. Okay. Um, so clinically, if I am 85 to 90% sure that there's a carpal tunnel, that's enough for me to make the diagnosis. The times when I get an EMG is when a patient has a history of like cervical stenosis or neck pain, or they tell me, man, I kind of feel it radiating all up and down, because we need to find out if this is a um, cervical spine issue or a peripheral compression neuropathy. If a patient has a history of diabetes or um, any other like a B12 deficiency that can cause peripheral neuropathies and, and decrease in sensation, then I get it. Um, if a patient has had a history of a carpal tunnel release in the past, I also get it. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you also use the nerve conduction velocity test as well? I do. So I use both interchangeably. Um, and it really, you know, you have to find who in your community does those well. Because mm-hmm. uh, there's some that you kind of get it and you're like, uh, you didn't even test all the muscles, you know. Or they test it from the elbow down. And you really want to make sure you're ch- testing from the neck down. And, you, and that's being specific to say, you know, I believe the patient has carpal tunnel syndrome um, I want to rule out cervical stenosis. I want to rule out that there's not a, you know, a diabetic, you know, peripheral neuropathy that's going. Well, I know, I know you were saying that, um, you know, like you say, this diagnosis can usually be made clinically. Uh, you only do it in special cases. Mm-hmm. But say when you, you know, it's what it is most times. But right. say if you're going to have surgery with this patient, would would you be more inclined to do one of these studies or? Only in those in those situations. Like I said, board collections is a little different because right. you got to know um, beyond a doubt. But only in those situations where I'm like, there, there's something a little bit confusing about this and the way that the person's presenting. Or if they're like, oh, it's all of my fingers. And I think they have a carpal and a cubital tunnel, cubital tunnel being at the elbow. And, and you can do all of those tests, the Tenel, the Phalans, and Durkins. You can do those at the cubital tunnel at the elbow. If they're presenting with both, and I said, let me get a, an EMG just to confirm. Now, that being said, um, the person I studied under for hand surgery, uh, Dr. Paul C. Dell, uh, we would have times where the EMG would be negative, no history of diabetes, no history of cervical stenosis, nothing that would kind of um, you know, obscure the picture. And he would always ask me, are you going to do one on this patient? And at first I, will, I said, no, like they're not, the EMG's negative. And he said, absolutely you do. They're presenting with carpal tunnel. And in all of those cases, if I can recall, the patients had carpal tunnel. We opened, you know, we did an open release so we can actually look at the nerve. And you see the nerve is indurated, it's compressed. They, for some reason, reason the EMG was negative. Wow. 
And, and great that we kind of just started going into treatment because that was going to be the next question. So can we kind of talk about the different treatments for, you know, median nerve compression? Sure. So um, when a patient comes in for carpal tunnel, I really treat them based on um, the longevity of symptoms and the severity of the symptoms. So when I have people that are coming in and they say, you know, it's only been going on for about a month. Um, then the first line treatment is bracing. So it's a carpal tunnel brace. And the purpose of the brace is to get the pressure off the nerve. So you want them in, and different studies have shown anywhere from neutral to extension, but you want to do anything to prevent them from flexing the wrist because that's when you have the most pressure on the nerve. Um, there are people that think anti-inflammatories can also help with carpal tunnel because the pathophysiology of it is swelling around the tendons, not exactly the nerve. So anything that causes increased fluid around the tendon sheath, which then pushes up on the nerve, causes it. Um, I don't prescribe anti-inflammatories. I don't think it's going to solve it. Okay. The second line non-operative treatment is injections. And again, you will find mixed studies on steroid injections in the carpal tunnel um, because the steroid is going to help to decrease that inflammation, which is going to help decrease the pressure on the nerve. Um, I only do a steroid injections two times. So they have to be at least three months apart. If a patient comes to me and it's the third time, I say, we need to go ahead and do the surgery. Um, but again, that's based on someone that is probably presenting, for me, less than three months of symptoms. Um, if they're presenting with one month and it's severe, I'll just go ahead and release it. Uh, the, something you have to keep in mind um, with any kind of carpal tunnel. So that's the non-op. Braces, injections, that's pretty much it. Therapy doesn't do it. Exercises don't do it. Heat packs, you know, creams, all of that is not, is, is not real. You know, like it's not going to do a thing. Um, from there, you really move into saying we need to do surgery. Now, now from there, um, Greg, you said surgery. Do, do you... What is the difference between doing open surgery versus endoscopically? And what are the um, different options? So... The difference, so I'll break down the difference um, as far as cosmetically. So with an endoscopic, there's um, one portal and two portals. The one portal um, is a small one centimeter incision, either longitudinally or transversely at the wrist crease. Um, and then you go in with your camera and a, a little knife and you release it. Um, with And that camera, you can actually see the end of the carpal tunnel because you see where it turns to fat. So you'll see tra uh, the transverse carpal ligament, which is a nice white shiny tissue, and then fat. Fat means stop because that's where the nerve is going to start bifurcating into the digital nerves. The two portal, you have that same one centimeter laceration at the wrist crease, and then you actually shine your light and you make a little poke hole and you push the, um, the endoscope all the way through so that you know you're through both sides of it. And then you go in with your blade and you actually hook it on where the transverse carpal ligament starts and you pull it through. And you can either do that distal to proximal or proximal to distal. So for the people listening, so we, the poke hole would be on the volar aspect of the, of the palm. The volar aspect of the palm, yeah. And again, right around that, that line um, where your thumb is. And, and since we, you just kind of touched on it, you talked about the transverse um, carpal ligament. Can we kind of talk about the anatomy of the carpal tunnel and right. the different borders? And so what's, what's important for the carpal tunnel is to know the contents, right? So you have the median nerve. 
In addition to the median earth, you have your tendons. You have FDS to all of the four fingers. You have FTP to all of the four fingers, okay? And then you have FBL. Those are what's in there along with the, the median nerve. The median nerve is going to be the most volar of those. And there's a certain order, which you learn for boards, <laughs> where the tendons actually lay like, you know, it's not one, two, three, four. There's actually a difference in how they lay and how deep they lay. Um, and then there are different anatomic variations. So everyone thinks that, okay, well, the median nerve goes in the carpal tunnel, and then the first branch is going to be um, the motor recurrent branch, which is what supplies it to the thumb. There are times where that motor recurrent branch can branch off earlier, can actually be laying on top of the transverse carpal ligament. Um, I mean, there's, there's so many different variations, which is why there are people who do only open, because when you do open, you can clearly see if there's going to be um, some kind of variant versus if, if you do endoscopic, you don't know if you're going to be cutting the nerve. Okay. So usually that's that's probably something you want to find every time, every surgery, kind of locate that nerve. Not necessarily. Okay. 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 <laughs> Not necessarily. Um, I, I do endoscopic and I do open. Um, so back to the differences. Sorry to bring, to bring it back. So um, I described the two ways of doing it endoscopically, right? So you can either end up with a one centimeter, one centimeter incision or two one centimeter incisions if it's a two portal. So then there's open carpal tunnel releases, which really is at most two to three centimeters over the palm. The difference between the two is that we found with endoscopic, patients can return to work slightly sooner, okay? And right. I think it's only the difference of maybe like a week or two based on the newest research. Cosmetically, they heal the same because any cut on your hand heals very well. The grip strength has been found to be um, not statistically significant between the two. Um, the difference is also in billing. <laughs> so an endoscopic, um, and I forget the CPT code, but an endoscopic um, bills more, maybe by two to three hundred dollars, depending on um, the insurance company, than doing an open. Um, other considerations is that um, with an open, you get to see everything. Um, you get to really inspect the median nerve. You know what it looks like. You get to see if there's maybe a recurrent branch that's coming off early. Um, all of that good stuff. Uh, anyone that has a revision carpal tunnel release should always be done open. So someone who had one 10 years ago and now they have recurrent carpal tunnel, you should not do that endoscopically. Now, how do you know that you're in the in the carpal? Like what defines the, the carpal tunnel region? Okay, so um, if you do it open, because endoscopically, uh, you're gonna be just right over there based on the incision. If you take your ring finger and you bend it at your PIP joint 90 degrees and let it just gently kind of lay on your hand, that pretty much, um, and the radial border of your ring finger, and you draw that longitudinally all the way down your palm, that will put you in the mid-center of um, the carpal tunnel. Okay, so that's always what I do. I take my, my ring, the patient's ring finger, I bring it down, and I draw that line. Then I draw a transverse line in your first web space, I go straight across because that kind of tells me where the carpal tunnel is going to end. And then because you don't have to make this huge gash, I now have, um, when I'm actually open and I have my retractors, I'm looking distally to make sure I go all the way through. I now know where to make my incision based on that radial border of the ring finger. And my incisions, when I do them open, are maybe two and a half centimeters, if that. Okay. Is there a difference? Because the open surgery was 
relatively quick. It's a mm-hmm. pretty quick surgery. Is the endoscopic surgery just as quick or does it take a little bit more time? Um, it takes um, some finesse to learn um, how to do endoscopic because you're no longer looking directly down. You're looking up at a camera. Um, you also have to be, depending on the system you use. So there are some systems where the knife is built into the endoscope with also the light source, right? And so there are systems where it's just a little trigger that you're holding onto. If that trigger is too loose or too stiff, you don't want to just plunge. So when you're going in, there's a little knife in most systems that comes up and it actually hooks on the ligament. And the technique you should be doing is you should be pulling back, releasing the knife so it goes back in your sheath and looking up to make sure you cut the ligament and that you see the nerve if the camera is upside down below you. Then you go back, you pull, pull another centimeter or so, and then release. And you do that all the way until you get to the very edge of your skin incision. And then what you do is you go back in with your scope and you turn the camera so that you can see both leaflets of the transverse carpal ligament. And you make sure that you also haven't injured the nerve. And it's, it's, very, it's very fine movements. Um, the way people injure the nerve is they go in and they just pull it. Right. And you can't really do that. It's, it's, there's a finesse to it. Now, now, what other conditions, I guess, with the median nerve should we kind of be be looking for? Well, other than um, the carpal tunnel, um, some things that you should look for after surgery. So with um, when my patients come in, I always see them two weeks after because that's when the skin incision heals. And the first thing you want them to do is make a fist, right? You want to make sure that they can still move all their fingers from the swelling. Um, the most important part is to make sure that their numbness, tingling, and pain has not increased since the surgery. Nobody should have an increase in symptoms. If they have an increase in symptoms, you have injured the nerve, and you need to take them back to surgery. Forget the EMG and all of that. You can monitor them for a week or two to see, well, maybe there's just an intense amount of swelling. Um, but most of the times, that tells me, when I have a patient, they come in and they say, I had a carpal tunnel release that was done five years ago and my symptoms got worse, I already know that I'm going back in most likely to repair the nerve um, than anything else. Uh, so that's really important to pay attention to. Um, and I'll, I'll answer that question, but there's, there's something important that I want to note, which is I tell patients that come in for a carpal tunnel um, release that there's three things. Um, the number one reason for getting the surgery done is to prevent the symptoms from getting worse. That is the number one goal for me of a carpal tunnel release because no matter what you do, it will get worse. That's what I tell them. It doesn't go away. It will stay with you. The second reason is to stop the pain that's associated with carpal tunnel. So it will become painful. When I release that nerve, the pain should go away, right? The last thing, and I tell them I give it to you in this order, is return of sensation. So worst case scenario, when I release people's carpal tunnel, you've had it for 15 years, and you're the tips of your fingers are numb, it might just be like that. You know, that might be your baseline from now on because that nerve has that much damage. And, and that's setting patient expectations. So most of the time, 99% of the time, they come back to me and they're like, oh, yeah, my sensation's back. I just got a little bit of numbness right here. Now they're really pleased with the results of the surgery because I told them your worst case scenario is your baseline is what you have. Right. All of them come back. They don't have pain. All of them come back and they know it's not going to get worse. I always know, known that uh, with surgery, you know, you got to set those expectations early mm-hmm. so uh, everybody know what to 
you know the the outcomes everybody right. kind of happy with it a whole lot more that way um so that was great i think that was really great on for the media nerve did you also were we going to go through the owner nerves well yeah we, we might as well because you know when people come in and they say numbness and tingling they're never going to be like oh it's just these three fingers and half of this one they're going to say the whole hand um so you want to make sure you can differentiate between the two so cubital tunnel now um is being compressed up at the elbow right so the ulnar nerve is coming down traveling through the cubital tunnel, you have that fascia that's covering it, um, and then it goes through another tunnel called Guillain's Canal, which is at the wrist. The the symptoms patients are going to always complain of is it's more zinging. So when people have carpal tunnel, most of the time they have, man, I have this numbness or pain. With cubital tunnel, they're like, I have this sharp electrical sensation that goes from my elbow all the way down to my finger. And so, again, it's the small finger and the ulnar half of the ring finger. You do the same test. So you tunnel, you start um, proximal, and you go down through the cubital tunnel and see if they have um, tingling, numbness, pain, all of that good stuff. The failings for the cubital tunnel is just having them bend their elbow up. And then you keep it there for 30 to 60 seconds. And you can do a Durkin's and kind of push on it. But if you do that to anyone at that area, it's going to be sensitive. So Tonell and Phalen's is the main thing. Um, your intrinsics are going to be weak. So that's where I ask people to spread your fingers open. And I put my fingers around like the index and ring finger. And I say, resist me closing your finger. So if it just goes shoop like that, that tells me their intrinsics are out. Okay. Um, that's where that grip strength, when people say, I can't open up a jar, I'm like, mm, that might be your, your ulnar nerve that's being affected. Um, treatment for that is typically non operatively, um, like I'll get them a heel bow to prevent them from um, bending their elbow. People who can't afford a $40 DME brace, I tell them, get some towels and an ace bandage, put your arms straight, and wrap the towels around it at night. It prevents you from bending your elbow up. What's, what pa patient population do you think usually you see more so with the uh, cubital tunnel? Cubital tunnel really is all age ranges. I would say I've seen cubital tunnel in as young as 16 all the way until, you know, people are in their 80s. People are in their 90s really don't care if they can't feel anymore because, <laughs> you know, they've experienced life. Um, but the youngest patient I've treated cubital tunnel has been on a 16-year-old. And um, that's because that nerve, you know, it can flip over that uh, medial epicondyle and cause um, a lot of increased pain and swelling. We bend our arms every day, you know. And so, I mean, I have cubital tunnel. I'm not going to do surgery on it. Um, but it just depends on how symptomatic it is. Now, now where, because you just mentioned it, where are the common sites of compression for the ulnar nerve for cubital tunnel oh, syndrome? Goodness. So there's multiple. <laughs> <laughs> There's multiple, okay? Um, this is a pimp question, so everyone should know this. The most common is going to be at the cubital tunnel itself. There's Osborne's fascia. There's the two heads of the FCU. That's the most common areas. I think there's like up to seven that okay. you can. Is it seven? Somewhere around there? There's a lot of them. There's a yeah, lot of them. There's, you know, the, the lateral, the intermuscular septum. I mean, there's so many, um, which is why when you treat it, uh, and there are people that do endoscopic cubital tunnel. I don't. Um, when you treat it, you have to make sure that you um, release all of that. Now, when you do it on a real person, there's not going to be signs saying, this is the two heads of FCU. This is, you know, Osborne's. This is endomuscular. It's just a sheet of fascia um, that you see the entire way through. Okay. okay. And there's multiple surgical techniques on how to release the cubital tunnel which is the pendulum has kind of swung on doing that um the simple version is called an in situ 
where you all you're doing is you're releasing the fascia. Um, now, I do in situ when people don't have motor symptoms, meaning they're not complaining of weakness or I don't see weakness on exam. It's just sensation, and it's been a short amount of time. Um, when people are having uh, motor symptoms of weakness and it's been going on for a very long time and I see atrophy in their hands, um, then there's different transpositions that you can do, ranging from subcutaneous, uh, where you release the nerve all the way through and you bury it in fat. That should only be done on, in my view, fat people, because <laughs> you right. have to have a lot of padding there. Okay. Um, I do something called submuscular, where I bury the nerve in the muscle. Okay. Um, there's people that take down a piece of the bone of the medial epicondyle so that it doesn't keep slipping over the bones. I mean, there's, there's multiple transpositions that you can do. Okay. And um, I believe you also want to talk about some lacerations as well. Yeah. So, I mean, since we're on the, the carpal tunnel, so there's... Um, high median nerve and low median nerve palsies that can occur when you lacerate your um, your nerve. So, for example, I saw a gentleman who um, had a laceration in his forearm, and he presented with a high median nerve palsy. So high median nerve palsies happen when the lacerations occur proximal to the anterior interosseous nerve, where it kind of goes off to um, FDS, FDP. Low median nerve palsies are the ones you're going to see when people had a carpal tunnel release and someone cut the nerve in surgery. So it's happening anywhere distal to where the anterior interosseous nerve comes off. So it could happen, you know, proximal to the wrist crease. It can happen in the carpal tunnel. Low median nerve palsies is going to be what is supplied by the nerves distal to AIN. So that's going to be your opponent's pollicis brevis, your flexor pollicis brevis, your abductor pollicis brevis, right? So that's all opposition. So the way that's going to present is inability to oppose. And how do you test that? Um, the same thing I said before, you can lay the patient's um, hand flat, have them try and bring their thumb over, and have them try and keep it there and try and pull it up right? Or you can test abduction of the thumb, which is lay their hand flat, bring it over, hold a pen above the thumb and say, bring your thumb up to me, and they won't be able to abduct the thumb. So that's the, the, um, the low. The high, you're now going to do um, FDS, those are going to be out, and then FDP to the index and to the, um, the long finger, right? So people will be able to do this, and FPL, so people will be able to um, flex the ring and small finger, even though FDS is out, FDP is still intact. So they'll still be able to kind of claw, right? But these fingers, what is that, like the sign of something? Benedicts. There Benedicts. you go. There you, you know, that's the, y'all medical students. Y'all uh, remember the little names. Yep. So that's with a high median nerve palsy, okay. right? And then, like I said, low is they're still going to have FDS, FDP. I'll fix them. Mm -hmm. so, so a patient comes with a laceration, and, you know, you do the clinical exam, and they have, let's say, for example, the Benedict sign. Mm -hmm. Where do we go from there? So um, there's two ways that you can treat it, and it depends on how far out. Up to 12 months from the time of the injury, um, if it was a high median nerve palsy, I'm going to explore the nerve and repair it. And so that means making an open dissection, um, looking at the nerves. If the two nerve ends are cut, um, then I have to take them back to healthy fascicles, which means sometimes cutting an additional centimeter to two centimeters. Then you're left with a gap, right? Because you can't have it, you can't do the nerve repair under tension. So what we are now doing is, um, the gold standard back in the day would be to take sural nerve 
and you would line up the fascicles. You'd sew it together using a nylon nylon, and you would reattach the two ends. Um, now there's uh, there's axogen, which is like an allograft of human processed nerve that's been washed of all antigens, and that's what I use for any kind of defect greater than a centimeter where I can't get it tension free. Um, and that's that's how we repair it if it's less than 12 months. And the 12 months is because after 12 months, those motor end plates are going to shut down. Okay, so let me ask. This is getting real real interesting. So would you actually take the graph for the for, from the serial nerve as well? Yes, yeah. Wow. So we, we take serial nerve graph. I don't do that anymore because Oxygen have, has come up with these, um, these other graphs that people have donated, and they do just as well. Okay. Yeah, so you don't have the, you know, the numbness on the lateral aspects of your leg anymore. You don't need two incisions. Okay. Mm-hmm. So much that you can do in orthopedia. You might not know I'm about, right? I'm telling you. That's, Never knew that, especially honestly. Especially surgery. Yeah, we do nerve surgery all the time. Okay. But if it's, if it's not a nerve, if it's more than 12 months or, you know, it's a, a saw injury where that nerve is just gone um, and it all shredded up, then it's tendon transfers. That's okay. what you're going to do. Okay, so Y'all so have when, looks on yeah, your face. I'm, I'm thinking here. Okay, so a tendon transfer. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now we're not worried about the nerve anymore. We're, yeah, we're, the we're just gone. trying to see if we can use another muscle to make the same movement at this exactly, point. Exactly, exactly. All right, it takes me a while, but I get it out. Yeah, <laughs> Doctor Fitz has it. Um, great. Is there, are there anything else? Is there well? Is there anything else on lacerations that you know future residents listen to this or resident current residents need to know about or even maybe attendings? Um, I think the important thing with lacerations is don't underestimate the size of the laceration to be correlated to um, how severe the accident is. Because I've had people that have come in with three or four centimeter, uh, millimeter, excuse me, lacerations over the median nerve distribution. um, And they're like, oh, it's not a big deal. And I'm like, hmm, sensations out, opposition's weak, and I open it up, and the nerve is just destroyed, and I have to take um, graft and repair it. Um, so that's the big thing. Um, the other important part for residents is, you know, a lot of y'all's job is exam and documentation. So whatever the patient says they have on the exam, for example, I had a gentleman with a saw injury across all four fingers and the carpal tunnel. Now, when I'm touching him, he says he can feel it, Right. I know he can't feel it. Like, there's there's no way. But you document what the patient says. And mm-hmm. you do that for medical legal reasons and because that's what the patient says. So if he's, yeah, I can, I can feel everything. Versus I get in there and all the nerves are cut, you know. Then I can right. report, well, I repaired all these nerves. And then when I see him in clinic afterwards, it's not going to make it seem like Dr. Bilbrew cut all these nerves in surgery. Because now I'm testing his sensation. And he's like, oh, yeah, I can't feel. I'm like... Exactly, which is why write down what they say and use five-point discrimination. Use a two-point discrimination. If you don't have access to one, I would always take a paper clip, I'll bend it in half, and estimate um, what I think one millimeter apart was. And you can do that just if you're in the ER. If they don't have that, you just grab one from the you know the nurse's desk. Uh, something that since you specialize in hand, mm-hmm. when you get a resident who present a patient and he tell you the physical exam. What's something that you always have to say, you missed this. You need to go back and get such and such. It's um, checking the radial and the ulnar aspect of the finger. So they'll always say, oh, sensations intact to light touch, you know, or S-I-L-T. They'll put that in the, the note. That's really kind of lazy. Um, what does sensation intact to light touch mean? And the Because radi- if you're talking about the ring finger, we know that that's dual innervated, right? So 
I need to know the radial and the ulnar aspects of the finger if it's intact. Um, the other thing is able to move all fingers, able to wiggle fingers. I also hate when people say that because we know we have, you know, we have FPL and then we have FDP and FDS. So a patient may be able to move that finger. FDS is cut, FDP is intact. Of course they're going to be able to move it, right? Because FDP crosses the PIP joint. So what I want them to do is isolate, you know, isolate the IP joint and ask the patient, bend down and hold it, bring it up and hold it. Isolate the PIP joint for each finger, bend down and hold it. Oh, the patient will always say, oh, I can't. Yes, you can. And if they can't, they can't. And you document it. Right. So that, that's all you have to do is take your time. It's a good bit of information, actually. I'm going to use that. Yes. <laughs> uh, we got to soak it all in while we can. Uh, I think this was a great talk. This yeah. was awesome. So, but before we go, Dr. Bill Baru, what is the uh, um, the best way that you would like for our listeners to be able to get in uh, in contact with you? Okay, um, my email address is uh, Dr. Letitia Bilbrew. That's D R L A T T I S H A B as in boy I L B as in boy R E W at gmail dot com. Um, I also have my own consulting business, which is Dr. Bilbrew Consulting LLC. Um, you can find that on Facebook. Uh, and then usually if people email me and they're trying to be mentored, I'll call you or do something or give you my cell phone number. Great. Thank- oh, and my website. There we go. At resurgence.com. Um, if you type in Letitia Bilbrew on www.resurgence.com, um, you'll find me. My offices are in Decatur and Snellville. I operate out of Eastside Hospital, DeKalb Hospital, Gwinnett Hospital, and my own surgery center. Perfect. Thank you again so much for coming on the podcast Absolutely. and sharing your knowledge. And, um, Yes, thank you so much. Absolutely, my pleasure. Now, thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the Nail Orthopedic Podcast with our host, Dr. Cole, as well as Dr. Fitz. We hope you enjoyed it. Our goal is to, you know, talk about different orthopedic topics and at least have you well-versed so you know how to manage it or answer some board questions as well. If If this is your first time listening to this podcast, please go and hit the subscribe button as well as go and give us a rating in iTunes. Hopefully it's five stars or however many stars you think it's worth. Uh, and then please just write a review. We'd love some good, honest feedback. And if you guys want to stay tuned in for some um, ortho tips and ortho uh, pictures and different educational topics and tools, um, please follow us on Instagram at Nailed It Ortho as well as Nailed It Ortho dot um, com. And if you need to contact us, contact us at Nailed It Ortho at Gmail dot com. There is a common theme there. Nailed It Ortho. All right. Until next time.